This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today, due to demand uh, for clarity and to remove confusion, I am joined by Neil Richmond of Fine Gael, who is going to enlighten us on what is happening with Brexit and the protocol. I have listened... Brexit and the word protocol are two words that have sort of become a filter where if I hear the word, I stop listening because we've been talking about it for so long. But then all of a sudden last week it became very pertinent again. Neil, what 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 is what is happening? Well, Brexit never went away. Yes, despite, okay. uh, despite the focus being moving on and the, all the... But I thought that like that it happened there. and then we were just now getting used to it. Like COVID, like we were now living with Brexit. To an extent, um, Boris Johnson won a general election on get Brexit done, but that in itself is an absolute myth. It's going to take us a generation to get Brexit done. But what's happened crucially is a deal was agreed, the deal was implemented, people had started to put it in place and move on and yeah, there was a few hiccups and people are starting to realise that, oh, this isn't just like it was before. What kinds of things? Well, kinds of things like, so if people are from Ireland importing things from the UK, all of a sudden they were getting customs notices or they noticed the prices were going up. Mm-hmm. Certain products were unavailable. My father-in-law can't get uh, Empress Grey tea and Marks and Spencers in Dublin anymore. So I'm doing all these border runs up to Newry for him and things oh, like that. Um, I have noticed Marks and Spencers becoming very uh, thin on their produce and also, um, yeah, a lot more we have a package for you, but we're not going to give it to us until you pay us, give it to you until you pay 17 quid in customs or whatever. Yeah, and that's the the practical base level Brexit that we were all starting to feel. If you were in England, it's a lot more extreme. So they would have had, back last year, you would have seen huge queues at the at the ports from going into Dover because the EU started putting in their customs checks. So lorries going from England to the continent are subject to a serious amount of checks. But what the UK have done is they've, they still haven't implemented their checks. So lorries going into the UK from Ireland or from the continent don't have to deal with the level of checks that they're meant to. Now, this isn't necessarily a good thing. It's, it's good in the short term for Irish exporters, but Irish exporters um, have been preparing for this for ages so all the preparatory work is kind of like well when do we need to do it you know there is huge confusion and it's not some political masterstroke it's down to inefficiencies on the British side but what's kicked off in the last couple of weeks basically it's been simmering along for a while so we had this guy Lord Frost David Frost the Brexit negotiator he negotiated the deal he signed the deal he gave it to Boris Johnson to get it through Parliament win a general election with an 80 seat majority in the back of Ever since then, he started to trash it because the impact for Northern Ireland is quite major. And where it was starting to be felt is for certain in, certain businesses from Northern Ireland who rely on Great Britain for certain products, seed potatoes, peat moss, um, equipment for garden centres, things like that, ice cream. We're all becoming kind of caught up in the, well, we need checks for these, we need your paperwork. And they can be quite extensive because the British government have decided not to have a very close deal with the EU. They've gone for a hard Brexit. So this is not the worst case scenario, but it's a pretty, pretty thin deal. So just take the example of ice cream. Someone in Northern Ireland selling ice cream needs to get it from the UK or Europe? They can get it from Europe, the UK, Ireland. However, the ice cream they're bringing in from Great Britain has to meet certain standards and it has to be verified that it's meeting those standards. 
why if if Northern Ireland is part of Great Britain, are they not subject to the same So rules? under the deal, under the protocol, okay. Northern Ireland has full access to the European single market. Um, it also has full access to the European Customs Union. But in return for that, Northern Ireland has to apply the rules of the European single market. Not same way as we do in Ireland? Exact same way as we do in Ireland. So why is that? More, why is it more difficult to get ice cream in Northern Ireland than in than in Dublin? It's just certain types of ice cream. And this is a very specific example because when, okay. they, when they make vanilla ice cream in the UK, they use whitener. The whitener needs to be approved by a licence by the European Commission to make sure it's safe to eat. Right, okay. Because vanilla ice cream isn't white, it's yellow. But it People looks nicer on a 99 if it's white. And this is just down to basic, this is just a key example so the whitener that is used, the EU is changing the rules on what can be allowed in for good reasons. The EU has rules on all our foodstuffs. The UK aren't moving with the UK rules. So now all of a sudden that ice cream can't be sold in Northern Ireland or there has to be an agreement or an exemption. Okay. And it comes down to that base level across hundreds of different products. So that means certain businesses in Northern Ireland, very small minority, are struggling. They can't get the products they want. They can't, or if they can, it's taking them a long time. This is causing disruption. In turn, politically, unionism has had a bad year. The DUP has had, they're on their third leader in the space of 18 months. Give Just give the listener um, a breakdown on which side is unionism. Which So the unionists are the people who want Northern Ireland to be part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. It's the DUP, it's the Ulster Unionist Party, it's tr- the traditional unionist voice. What's the difference um, between a unionist and a loyalist? Loyalists are more extreme. Okay. Generally, what the the but sort they both of ultimately want the same thing, but not in no. Absolutely, unionists want to maintain the union. Loyalists are loyal to, loyal to the Queen, is what they say. The shorthand term that's used a lot now is the PUL, the Protestant Unionist and Loyalist Community. Okay. Big caveat that not every Protestant is unionist and not every Catholic is nationalist. Is, yeah. Kind of one that that's used for shorthand. Um, and so they've had a bad year because of these. They've had a bad year for lots of reasons. Um, so you have the Ulster Unionist Party, they change leader, they're stagnating. So that's their official unions, the traditional unions, mm-hmm. the party of David Trimble, now led by Doug Beattie. Then you had the Democratic Unionist Party that 18 months ago were led by Arlene Foster. Mm-hmm. They backed Brexit the hardest. Um, after a couple of years of unease, they got rid of Arlene Foster. They replaced her with Edwin Poots, who doesn't believe in dinosaurs. And Sorry. <laughs> What do you mean he doesn't believe in dinosaurs? So the DUP, as well as being a political party, also stem from a hardcore religious movement. So they're founded by Dr. Reverend Ian Paisley, who we all remember, who was also the founder of the Free Presbyterian Church. These are hardcore Protestants. These are extreme. So but why don't they believe in dinosaurs? So Edwin Poots is a young earth creationist who thinks oh. the world is only 4,000 years old. Created by God? Created by God alone in seven days. Right, okay. And I'm not mocking that belief like that, but... The, the maths on that is that means you don't believe in dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, there are there are things that you can see with your eyes that are more than four thousand years old. That's definitely true, but not for young Earth creationists, and that makes up a large part of the DUP's elected representatives because they stemmed before they were a political movement; they were a religious movement, and you would see it with a lot of their leaders. Not to go down a, a complete DUP rabbit hole, but they are, you know, they were the people who led Ulster. You know, no sport on Sunday. They wanted playgrounds chained up on Sundays because you shouldn't have games on a Sunday. They said, you know, Ulster says no to sodomy, all these things. They are hardcore conservatives. They would make certain people in the US Republican Party wince. They'd make many people in the Conservative Party wince. There's no real comparison. But surely it's, it's those 
beliefs that are meaning they're having a tough time getting pop, you know, the, getting new members rather than Brexit, no? Not really, no, uh, to an element. But a lot of unionists will just hold their vo- hold their nose and vote for the strongest possible unionist party because the union and nationalists will do the same and because the union is the most united, important thing. Because right, okay. Northern Ireland, the politics in Northern Ireland is not too dissimilar to Scotland at the moment. It's wholly caught up into the tribal division. You're mm-hmm. either green or orange and that's it. Although what we have seen in the last year is the Alliance Party growing exponentially. They've had a huge seat increase. They're so the, the moderate Alli- liberals, pro-European. They don't don't identify as nationalist or unionist. They take people from all religious communities. They're, they're, they're quite sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naomi Long, Stephen Farry, you know, they're very middle moderate. of the road. Very, very moderate. And there is moderate unionist and there is moder- moderate nationalist, not to say there's not. But they've just taken that sort of partition element out of politics. Yeah. yeah. They, want, they want to focus on making Northern Ireland work. But the DUP, had Edwin Poots decided with Ian Paisley Jr. to get rid of Arlene Foster, did it in a cack-handed way and he ended up being leader for just 21 days of the party. And then Geoffrey Donaldson, who's been around for a long time, who, like Arlene Foster, was originally an Ulster Unionist, but came over and would be perceived nominally as more moderate, but there's degrees of moderation when it comes to the DUP. He's taken over as leader. And for the last year, Literally for the last year, he's put the point that it's the protocol that's causing issues. And for a lot of unionists, the issue with the protocol is they feel they're now less British than people in Great Britain. They feel that there's because a Because they have access to Europe. Or they, because, because they're restricted. They feel they're, getting, they're not getting the same deal as the rest of the United Kingdom, that the goods they're getting is restricted. Now, the flip side to that is that Northern Ireland economy is doing better than the rest of the United Kingdom. Yeah, because surely having access to the European market, I know you have your checks and balances, but it means that you also have access to more than than just the UK. The European single market is the world's largest economic bloc with a population of about 450 million people. It's multiples that of the UK. Um, it has two other G7 economies in, in the form of France and Germany. Northern Ireland has huge access to that. Businesses are looking to invest in Northern Ireland because they get full access to both Great Britain and the European single market. Northern Ireland is doing better economically than the rest of the UK post-pandemic. They are seeing businesses open up, all the business groups in Northern Ireland saying, no, the protocol, it's not perfect. We want to make it work, um, but it's actually a good deal and we're happy with it. And crucially, the majority of politicians in Northern Ireland are in favour of the protocol. Assembly elections last May, 52 of the 90 Assembly members elected back the protocol. The so ones, the ones that don't are unionists. Okay, so they're, they're, they're like a, just a very vocal minority. Well, they're a large minority, but they're being driven by the, the minority minority. So I've mentioned the TUV before, mm-hmm. the traditional unionist voice. Now you thought Edwin Poots had some extreme views. These guys are more extreme. So these are the guys who split from the DUP about 10 years ago because they went into power sharing with Sinn Féin. Okay. Jim Allister. These lads are hardcore. And they're egged on by a few loyalist activists, the likes of Jamie Bryson, a few other things, the sort of people who were throwing petrol bombs on buses last year in Northern Ireland, organising anti-protocol rallies. And they're, they're fairly intimidating scenes. There was one before Christmas. It was snowing. It was in the middle of night. You had a couple of hundred people walking down the street in orange sashes and very, very strong speeches from the stage, having a cut at Leo Vragkar, Michal Martin, Simon Coveney, Mara Shethkovich. You know, it's all the EU's fault, bringing over people from England like Kate Hoey, who used to be a Labour MP, Ben Habib, who was a Brexit Party MEP, really extreme people. And their target is 
the protocol and they're making out that the protocol is making Northern Ireland less British and it's a threat to the Union and then Sinn Féin arrive, become the largest party after the Assembly elections so it should be a Nationalist First Minister. So what we have at the moment is the DUP are staying out of Stormont. They're not involving themselves in the North-South institutions. We have no Assembly. We have no Executive. I've so, like that since May. So the just to clarify for listeners, so Stormont is like the, the, the government building, the doll of the, Stormont the North? Is the Northern Irish Assembly, 90 MLAs elected. So an MLA is like a TD that we, like we have down here. But they have an agreement that there has to be power sharing. Yeah. So there has to be a nationalist so a, and a unionist a representation. Manda- a mandatory coalition that the government is made up of people from cross-party and that the First Minister and Deputy First Minister has to be one from each. In Northern Ireland, Northern Irish politics in the Assembly, you either identify as nationalist, unionist or other. Okay. And so you have to have a nationalist and a unionist as First and Deputy First Minister. Okay, so like Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar, if it was the same, would have to be either unionist or or nationalist. I'm just trying to extrapolate for people who can get a reference. But because the DUP are staying out of... Because they're staying out, they haven't nominated a Speaker of Assembly like a Cairn Corla. There's at best a minimal working government in Northern Ireland. So what do they do? We've been in this situation before, haven't we? Like they just don't sit, it doesn't operate and the civil servants run the place? Basically, London runs the place, civil servants run the place. And as a result, because it's a devolved administration, there are certain funds that can't be spent. So £350 million worth of COVID supports couldn't couldn't be spent in Northern Ireland this year because the DUP sat out of government. And what was, are they just being, it sounds very childish, like I'm just not going to play with you. Yeah, that's definitely one take on it and I wouldn't necessarily disagree. It's political gamesmanship and the words Jeffrey Donaldson uses, well, it's the only thing we can do to get people's attention. So again, pretty childish. Um, but to get, we have, you have our attention. What do you want to do with it? They feel we're not listening. We're not addressing their concerns. The biggest problem with the DUP and Brexit, they were very pro-Brexit. So were the TV. The Ulster Unionists were split. The DUP have pushed Brexit the hardest. They've said no to every solution put forward. Bear in mind, for two years of the Brexit negotiations, they had the balance of power at Westminster. It was a minority Conservative government led by Theresa May who relied on the support of the DUP MPs. A deal was crafted to meet their demands. They still said no. They have these seven tests. The only way to actually meet them will be for the UK to rejoin the EU. Sounds great to me. Obviously not very popular with the DUP or the Tory party in London. So it kind of came to a head after the Assembly elections the Conservative government have been threatening for the last year to, to invoke what's known as Article 16. So that means you can pause the protocol and reopen negotiations. But what instead they've done over the last two weeks, and it's pretty, it is pretty extreme, but it can get lost because people are so fatigued by Brexit and there's so many different issues. We've already talked about unionism versus nationalism, dinosaurs, ice cream. Everything comes into the pot. Mm-hmm. And we haven't started talking about chlorinated chicken cars or ASOS deliveries yet because <laughs> it's all part of the mix. But basically, you have a British government who said, we're not happy with what's going on in Northern Ireland. We feel the protocol is having a negative impact. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. So despite having an international treaty with the EU that took a long time to negotiate and a heck of a lot of appearances on BBC for the likes of myself to try and explain it, um, we're just going to rip it up and we're going to pass laws domestically that will allow our ministers get rid of all the checks from Great Britain going into Northern Ireland. Comes back to why do we have the checks? The checks are there to protect the single market. 
because the UK have chosen to leave the EU, they want a hard Brexit, we don't know what standard their goods are because we don't have any treaty with them. So therefore we need to check them coming into the market. Because if they come into the Northern Ireland unchecked, they can then come down to the south and then into, back into Europe if they want to. Absolutely. And that can be food produce, it can be faulty mechanics, it can be anything. The UK want to sign a trade deal with Australia that have really, really low food standards compared to us in the EU that don't have any sort of climate change provision in how they produce food. They've homogenised beef pump full of hormones that we've been banned for years. Um, and if they were to get into our food stream, we'd be eating just lower quality food. Mm-hmm. And That's also been shipped from Australia, presumably, in, exactly. which is not very carbon not The shipping alone, but how they farm in Australia is not very... It's intensive farming. And so they have to have checks somewhere... So the only land border left between the EU and the UK is on our island, 499 kilometres long, 208 recognised crossings, the centre point of a very fraught four decades of um, civilian conflict. So the alternative is to have ports of entry, checks at ports of entry into Northern Ireland, about four of them, Belfast Port, Warren Point, Belfast Airport, Derry Airport. The checks are minimal. Yes, they require a bit of paperwork, But because the UK are choosing a really hard Brexit, it means there's less agreement between the EU and the UK. Less agreement means more requirement for checks. So the UK's solution, rather than sit down with the EU as they have been doing and work through all the issues that are are popping up and say, well, let's get an agreement on ice cream whitener and everything else that goes with that to make it easier for the the minority business that affected Northern Ireland, the UK said, you know what? stuff your deal, we're just going to make our own rules and get rid of the checks and in return we're going to create a load of new things where companies in Northern Ireland can follow European or British rules and sure there's no problem with that then we will decide that there's going to be a red and green lane like we have in the airport and at the British government's behest of course anyone can go through the green lane if the goods are only going to stay in Northern Ireland. Then the other thing that they've promised is in-market surveillance. Don't know what that means. And the other thing is that they would have rigorous sanctions for those who break the rules. We don't know what rules they're breaking. We don't know what sanctions they are. All these things were discussed over the last four or five years. They were all completely thrown out as unworkable, untested, not an operation in the world, anywhere else in the world. So for the last two weeks, the British government have threatened this. Then they published the legislation reaction from those of us in Ireland and across the EU has been very, very angry, very disappointed. We've seen Michal Martin and Leo Vragkar and Mary Lou MacDonald say it's a new low in Anglo-Irish relations post-Good Friday Agreement. The UK is not a trusted actor on the world stage. You know, we've an actual war in Europe at the moment and the UK are looking for a trade war. We have a dictator in Russia who's broken international law and we have a British government seeking to break international law. It is pretty serious. Unfortunately with all things Brexit people are understandably fatigued by it. Mm -hmm. Um, People want to move on I get that but you have a British government that simply doesn't want to move on and like I've I should be a lot more balanced with this but there's not that much balance to offer on this it's quite blunt that the British government as a negotiating tool or more cynically as a sort of internal political bun fight have decided to rip up, inter- threaten to rip up international law, present legislation. Now, the big problem when it comes into, they say it's because they want to bring stability to Northern Ireland and they get the executive back up and running. It's not a quick fix. If this law that they've, pre- this law that they presented, it's going to take twelve to fifteen months to pass anyway, so it won't be passed in time to solve the DUP's objections. 
there has to be elections in Northern Ireland by November if they don't fulfil an executive you've got like a six month countdown clock to form an executive if you fail to do it there's fresh elections But if there's um, fresh elections and the same thing happens does the same thing just keep happening every six months? Potentially and that's something that Edwin Poots has threatened he said we're happy to have elections every six months until we get our way which isn't sustainable and they've already lost a chunk of votes the DUP to the Alliance Party because people in Northern Ireland understandably want practical solutions and the majority of business people are okay with the protocol as are the majority of the population and the majority of MLAs. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor humdingermortgages.ie your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business right not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end and they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application but then they don't abandon you they will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply they specialise in helping first-time buyers people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate and like for me I'm going to switch my mortgage I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make so take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey so while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding. And you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 plus that. uh, Or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the €5 that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. The Podcast Studios is the home of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's where lots of our shows are recorded and we work on editing, promotion, videos, live shows and lots more. As a podcast production company with three state-of-the-art studios for audio and video in Dublin city centre, we can work with you to tell great stories in a professional and engaging way. 
From government organizations to charities, arts groups to international brands, entrepreneurs to hobbyists, we've worked with everybody and we can help you to get the word out. Whether you need studio time, you're hosting a live stream or webinar, or you need support with editing or marketing, we can tailor a package for you. For more info, head to thepodcaststudios.ie. So the protocol is working at the moment, functioning in the sense that the economy is not thriving, but doing better than the UK, maybe thriving. And all of this, so, so, the, so the UK government is saying, oh, the, the protocol is an issue, we need to change it, just because of the DUP? No, not just because of the DUP. The real reasons is it's down to internal politics of the Conservative Party. It also seemed that like once things got very hot for Boris about like having parties during lockdown, he was like, oh, let's bring out this other issue and look have, over here. We have consistently seen this since Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister. He got elected with a daft slogan about getting Brexit done. And ever since then, whenever things have got a little bit hot, picking a row at the EU over the protocol, over French fishermen, has been a really, really handy um, distraction technique technique. I've seen it every time. Like I've not this isn't the guess, this isn't me being the art cynic. It's quite clear that this is a way they operate. The other aspect is the person who's put the legislation through, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has aspirations to take over from Boris Johnson. She was a Remainer. She needs to look tough on the EU to mm-hmm. appeal to that core of Eurosceptic Tory MPs who will probably decide a potential future leadership election. So what like is this just him trying to like have the heat off him for a little while and therefore we can say oh well he probably won't do it so because he's just trying to get some different headlines and then when you know when it comes to the cut and thrust of it he'll back down or or is this a serious oh it's serious because he's completely unpredictable this is not a politician that follows a form guide he could do this he could easily push this legislation through and then come in he went on British News the day it happened. He said, look, this is no big deal. Don't know why anyone's getting so hot and bothered about it. And the problem with the British media cycle is this was a big story for maybe 24 hours. And then it was about refugee flights to Rwanda. And today it's about a train strike. Right, OK. Um, but for those of us in Ireland, this is really, really serious. Um, the rest of the EU is understandably moved on a bit. As again, if you're in Poland and you've got 4 million Ukrainian refugees in you your country, really, care about really don't Ireland. care about ice cream whitener in Northern Ireland or whether Geoffrey Donaldson feels less British today than he did a few weeks ago. Um, and it puts it in a context, but it is really serious because for those of us in Ireland, the situation in the North isn't good. It's not a good place. It's not a happy place at the moment. We saw buses being put on fire. We see a viable death threat against Leo Vragkar. We see an event that Simon Govany was speaking at a few weeks ago, disrupted by a bomb threat. We've seen someone arrested about this at the weekend. Are they all being happened by this? Are they all happening from the same group? It's a wider collective of people who want loyalists of loyalists who feel less British. Some of it they're doing because they feel less British. Other because they're. They are fronts for, for drug dealing and the PSNI has had a great deal of success cracking down on on drug distribution in Northern Ireland. Just like the guards through lockdown had a huge success here in terms of seizing cash and cab but seizures. But why is that Leo Rad- Like why would you threaten to kill Leo Radker or Simon Coveney because... They are very, very handy bogeymen and you have unionist politicians even today saying that Simon Coveney isn't listening to the unionists. It's... Dublin's telling us what to do and this is all a front because they're trying to force to a united Ireland and drive us all into the sea. Like they are being whipped up by a very, there's a very nasty element in loyalism just like there's a very nasty element in republicanism who have been whipping people up at rallies but the problem is the supposed mainstream politicians have 
bought into this. To his credit, Doug Beatty pulled all his um, UUP colleagues from platforms at these anti-protocol rallies prior to the assembly elections. He said they've gone too far. They're getting too vicious. But the DUP are still sending people along. But they're like they can't, they can't win. As in, they're they're not even asking for something that's deliverable, right? Well, it's hard to know actually what they're asking for. Yeah, you know, restore their full feeling that they their their true British identity. There are some in the loyalist community who do want a hard border. There are some in the loyalist community who want to go back to the dark days, of the fifties fifties and sixties, when there was gerrymandering, and Protestants had what's gerrymandering mean? Gerrymandering, sorry, was um, where constituencies were drawn to suit um, unionists. Okay, um, so they're kind of guaranteed that there was a de facto unionist minority in the Northern Irish Parliament. Um, they also would have had a horrible pre-the-civil rights movement in the North. Things like housing allocations, preference was given to those who were from the unionist community. You know, very hard to get a job in Harlan and Wolf if you weren't a Protestant. All these sort of things. Um, you know, Northern Ireland went through a period of being a very dark place um, for a long time. I would argue for the last 25 years it's been a really bright place and mm-hmm. it's growing. Some people don't like that. There's always some people who are against change. And so... I'm not a huge fan of it myself, but not I'm not not as uh, connected to the darkness as it sounds. It is it up there. How how did the Alliance Party fit into this? Are they sort of a hope in darkness, or is it a light that can be easily muted by the other two parties? Because it seems to me that a lot of people in my generation, we were very 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 small when like Oma happened, or and we kind of forget about it, and we've grown up in relative security, and so it's like, why are you still fighting about that? Like, we have the Good Friday Agreement, just get on with it. And then, so I can see that maybe there's that generation also in the North who are maybe voting for the Alliance could be like, can we just get over this unionist, nationalist thing and make Northern Ireland function? Yeah, there's a good chunk. Um, Problem: A lot of people in Northern Ireland leave. Um, They Mm -hmm. go to Great Britain, they come down here. Um, and it's much more uh, dominant in the unionist population where a lot of unionists will go to third level in Scotland or in Newcastle or they will rightly see, they, as is their entitled to, they'll see London as their capital so that's where they'll move to for certain jobs. Yeah. Um, and you'll see lots of people come down to Dublin um, to go to college or to, to get work or whatever else. Um, we all have friends from the north, we all know people from the north mm-hmm. who've moved down. Um not a lot of unionists, though. Not a lot of unionists. They tend, as I said, go to London yeah. and, and Scotland and places like that. Um, and then you have the situation that, yes, the alliance has grown massively. They are the, the stridently pro-European party, very moderate and liberal when it comes to social issues like abortion and marriage quality and all those sort of things. Which Northern Ireland were a little bit further behind us mm-hmm. on that. Now, it's been rectified since. Um, there's other moderate parties too, the SDLB, who didn't have a great la- election, who are the sort of moderate nationalists. And Sinn Féin have consolidated their lead as the biggest party because in the north, just like they have done down here, they have moderated their politics a lot. And they go out of their way generally to play down um, the links to the IRA and the glorifying the past. Now, there's still the occasional time when there's a, a memorial or a, a hunger strike or anniversary and you get still get that insight that they still lionise people who, who blew up people. But we all have to accept that Sinn Féin have moved a lot, mm-hmm. um, definitely in terms of their outward looking. So there is a huge frustration. Unions, the vote for unionism has gone down. The DUP lost a chunk of votes in the election. They lost some to the TUV who are more extreme to them. They lost some, a good chunk to the alliance who are more, more, more moderate. 
you know, even today there's the newly elected Alliance MLA. She was the Lord Mayor of Belfast. She had her second child three weeks ago and she's in Stormont Christ. with her newborn baby saying, I'm here to work. And you know the way that rule that we talked about where there has to be a unionist and a nationalist in Stormont? How can the Alliance ever sort of get in there if they identify as neither? Can they ever be a minister or a deputy? Yeah, yeah no, and they, they generally are. And you'd always find, traditionally you would have had the Alliance party would have taken the justice ministry. Okay. Because that's the most contentious one because that comes over policing. So policing obviously deals with dissident terrorists, but it also deals with the Parades Commission and people in both the unionist and nationalist community would have, would make complaints about policing mm-hmm. for historical and contemporary reasons. So you usually would have had Naomi Long, who's the leader of the Alliance Party, is the outgoing justice minister. Okay. Um, but under the new format, based on their election results, the Alliance Party, they use a system up there called the DeHunt system, where they mm-hmm. equally, uh, you get a certain minimum number of seats and then the positions in cabinet or the executive, as they call it, are equally dispersed amongst those parties. So I think the Alliance are entitled to two, if not three positions in the but new But could they executive. ever be the prime min- the yeah. first minister? Or the Absolutely. Th- okay. They just have to get enough votes. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're not that far away. Like coming up in the opinion polls, they, they got up to the second party and they're only, they're only, they're less than 10 seats behind the DUP. So could it, say six months time, still nothing's happening, they have another election. Could it be Sinn Féin and the Alliance up there and no DUP as the first minister and deputy first minister? Possibly, yeah, possibly. It's unlikely, but you'd, you'd still have to have a balance in the executive. Of, okay, you'd, you'd still have to have, have, to have ministers. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this all comes back down to the Good Friday Agreement and how it's operated. And if Boris Johnson pushes this through, like when will we, what should we be listening out for? I'm trying not to filter this these words out of my radio listening anymore, but... Yeah, it's the muted hashtag that is Brexit and protocol. <laughs> um, there's a couple of kind of key points. So it's the European reaction. Mm-hmm. So you see, we would have heard discussion this week is that the EU has unpaused um, legal cases they'd taken against the UK for already breaking the terms of the withdrawal agreement. They'll start new legal action. They have started, they've prepared to start new legal action based on this. But if this legislation passes, the real buzzwords, if we hear the collapse of the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, if that falls apart, that's when we go back to tariffs and quotas and things get really, really expensive. It means our farmers who export to the UK are looking at a 44% tariff on beef. So that means less people will buy their beef. But equally, we buy a lot of stuff in from the UK. We buy more stuff in from the UK than we sell to the to than we sell to them. Um, all that stuff will get more expensive. Depends on the product because it's called a tariff schedule. Um, but... You name anything you import, either for personal or business use, um, from the UK, and it'll go up by at least twelve percent. But does that not mean that people will be like, "Oh, well, I'm just not going to get it from the UK. I'll start going to Germany"? Or sure, but there's certain things that you can only get from the UK. If you want a Tesco ready meal, you have to get it from the UK. Right. Okay. If you shop in Marks and Spencers, your products are all coming. We rely on a lot of British multiples here. Have seen a change. We've seen shops like Decathlon open here and a few other continental stores. Mm-hmm. We still have a lot of British stores here. Um, you know, not just the food stores like H&M, things like that. They are all over and we rely on the UK for so many then component parts of what we make here. Okay. Um, it's just a bigger economy. It has a manufacturing base where we don't. How likely do you reckon those things are to happen? Not very likely. Okay. I think we're, that if that was to happen, that's a good 18 months to two years away and there's a lot that could happen before then. 
fair chance Boris Johnson won't be Prime Minister in a year's time. He's already came close in a confidence motion in his own party a couple of weeks ago. Not close enough, though. <laughs> Not close enough, but that is the, the slimmest uh, victory of a confidence motion that any Conservative leader has okay. won. Survived. S- survived. You know, Margaret Thatcher was better than that. They John all Major. left. They, they all left within, uh, within six months of a confidence motion. That's been the trend. Is he the type to, like, blow it up and then leave? You know, like in the next six months, if it looks like... He'll stick it out into the last breath. Right, OK. And he, he does have a very blindly loyal support base. Um, but before we get to two years, you also have another British general election in due course. The opinion polls, Conservatives could still win the next general election, but the current opinion polls show that they won't. Probably won't be the Labour Party on their own. They might need to rely on a deal with the Liberal Democrats or the Scottish Nationalist Party. So there's a lot that could happen in the British domestic political sphere. Mm-hmm but also the European Commission are in no rush. They're not going to force the UK government's hand. They have consistently reacted quite patiently. Um, things don't happen very fast at a European level. That's why the, a lot of people in the UK were Eurosceptic. They're too critical. Oh, you haven't done enough for Ukraine quick enough. You didn't move quick enough on vaccines. But they actually, it's because you're trying to coordinate 27 different countries. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder than one country. Even though it's slower, it's bigger, so it can be done. So even though maybe our vaccine rollout starts a little slower, it was still more complete and at a better price with more choice. Our support for Ukraine is fairly, it's going to be there for another two decades in terms of financial support, bringing them into the EU, all that sort of stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to go down that pivot. but So I don't think it's likely that it's all going to blow up and be worst case scenario, but certainly between now and the autumn, things periodically are going to get a lot more hot and heavy You'll have Are they just getting hot and heavy in discussions or are we going to have any... We're not having discussions. This is the problem. So the British government and the EU have a thing called the Joint Implementation Committee that from January to February 24th was meeting and, and pouring through line by line the issues like seed potatoes and ice cream whitener and everything else. Good methodical work. And then for whatever reason on 24th of February it could have been due to the outbreak of the latest outbreak of war in Ukraine or whatever else Liz Trust completely sort of withdrew from the process. So the European Commission has presented a really comprehensive package of proposals to address the concerns in Northern Ireland. They went on a visit there last autumn, presented them in October. British government didn't react. Now the British government's counter-suggestion are these half-baked ideas that have never worked in practice. So they've said, yeah, we want a negotiated solution, but at the same time we're going to bring this loaded gun to the table and say if you don't give us what we want we're going to pull the trigger and pass domestic law to allow us to act unilaterally and break international law at the same time. It just seems wild and my, my anecdotal experience of I have a few people that I would know from, from work and just sort of like acquaintances that would be conservative British people. They don't even know what countries are in Northern Ireland or what counties are in Northern They don't know anything about Northern Ireland. They don't, they're, they're sort of like, is that, is that Ireland or is that the UK? And I'm like, well, that depends on who you ask and that's like a really big question. Like, it seems like the UK or Boris and his cronies don't even, it's just like this ragdoll that they just kind of mess around with that they don't even really care about Northern Ireland. And um, that is completely fair assessment. I do not think this current British government care that much about Northern Ireland. I think they are using them. And even, in fairness, you hear a lot of unions, including the DUP, saying, well, we've been burnt by Boris Johnson a couple of times before. He promised us X, Y and Z and then turned his back on us. Theresa May, to her credit or discredit, was a real unionist. She believed in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to a fault. You have a lot of MPs 
both parties have never been to Northern Ireland, who've never shown an interest in Northern Ireland or Ireland anywhere, mm-hmm. haven't even been to Temple Bar in a stag like. <laughs> and there is a, a lack of understanding. The flip side is we are overly obsessed with the UK in this country. We consume right, okay. a lot of British media. Um, politicians like me will know all about you know, the fact that there's two by-elections in England this week. Mm-hmm. But the chance of a British politician knowing we had a by-election last year in this country is slim to none. Yeah. Um, I remember at one stage at the start of the Brexit negotiations, Ian Duncan Smith, former Cabinet Secretary, former leader of the Conservative Party, said that the only reason the Irish government was taking a hard line because Prime Minister Edna Kelly was worried about Sinn Féin winning the presidential election. Edna Kelly? Edna Kelly, Sinn Féin, presidential election. There's so much wrong with that. And that kind of no one batted an eyelid when he said it the first time. So we've had British politicians the last few days and I've been on programmes with them literally go on and say, well, there's a majority in the Assembly in Northern Ireland against the protocol. It's like, that's just factually incorrect. And they'll go, oh, we'll agree to disagree. No, 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 the, the numbers are there. It's factually incorrect to say that. We had the Attorney General of um, the UK who is pushing this legislation saying that Northern Ireland's economy is suffering even though its economy is the one bit of the UK apart from London that has recovered to pre-pandemic levels and is doing well. So if they just left it all alone would it be fine apart from the unionists feeling like they're not British? um, No because there is still work to be done you know the protocol you need to be agile if they just left it to the officials to work through it, I actually think, yeah, we'd have a breakthrough, but it wouldn't be very interesting. Are they? Well, we don't. I, I'm sick of it being interesting. It's not interesting, no. you know. I'd like this to be boring. Yeah. I wouldn't mind a few civil servants just working in the background, sorting it all out. Are civil servants meant to be not politically? And and they're not. And I'll give so them. They they're they're just doing what. But civil servants have to do what their their elected politicians tell them to do. Um, European Commission is slightly different but you have European Commission officials and British officials had been working through this they were providing solutions for the problems within the protocol everyone acknowledges there's problems within the protocol everyone appreciates that unions concerns do have to be listened to and when they have the reasonable suggestions they have to be engaged in but if they're just going to say no to everything you also have to be quite firm and say well you need to accept something um, if the British government stopped chasing the culture war that is Brexit and it's not just Brexit it's all about sending refugees to Rwanda it's all about trans rights and gender issues taking the knee we've seen this consistently from this British government they love picking on these issues that politically appeal to a very narrow nationalist British nationalist base Mm -hmm. and unfortunately having a kick at the EU slagging off Ireland plays well with a very small part of the electorate that are devoted Boris voters who wouldn't be voting for the Conservative Party otherwise. Right. It was really quite depressing. It seems really grim, yeah. Yeah, and when you go to those places and you you meet your arch Brexiteer, like it's, it's not a nice conversation. And unfortunately, more widely in the UK, reasonable, moderate people are starting to think, well, our you know, we're just getting sick of this, so therefore it's Ireland's fault or it's the EU's fault. And you go like, no, it's your government's fault. And but they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. They, don't want, they really don't want to talk about Brexit. Yeah. But every time it's brought up, it's brought up in a way to attack the EU, which will distract from Partygate and whatever bit of nonsense that's playing around the tabloid headlines this week. Neil Richmond, thank you so much. Um, you do great stuff on, on Instagram explaining all this. Where can people find you? Yeah, I suppose I'm most active on Twitter for snarky comments early in the morning based on what's in the Daily Express. 
Um, that's or I occasionally write columns for the Irish News or the Times Red Box. Great, and we will put the links to all of, like to your Twitter and your Instagram uh, on these show notes. So you should give Neil a follow if any of that made sense and you want to know more. Obviously, if anything massive breaks, I'll get in touch with Neil and he can come back on and explain it to me. Um, Neil Richmond, thank you so much. You have listened to another episode of Basically. If you enjoyed it, you found it helpful, please share it with someone or give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps us to reach a bigger audience. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and we were produced today by Julie Hassett. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.